Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeart Radio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. I accidentally picked an episode that has a little bit of a connection to George Washington Williams, who we just talked about. Uh, It might not be a direct connection, though. Today we are talking about Rebecca Crumpler, who started attending 12th Baptist Church in Roxbury, Massachusetts in the 1870s. This was right around the time that George Washington Williams was pastor there, Uh, I did not find confirmation on, like, the exact timeline when she started attending this church. So it's not totally clear whether they definitely were there at the same time. But based on this timeline, it is possible. Rebecca Crumpler was the first Black woman in the United States to earn a medical degree. She also wrote one of the first, if not the first, medical texts by a Black person in the United States— When she graduated, the New England Female Medical College was conferring the degree Doctress of Medicine, and that title might seem disparaging or belittling today, but it's one that she really seems to have embraced because to her, it signified something important about her work, which we will be talking about. Rebecca Davis was born on February 8, 1831, in Christiana, Delaware. Her parents were Absalom and Matilda Davis, but Rebecca spent a lot of her childhood being raised by an aunt in Pennsylvania. Christiana is roughly 10 miles from the Pennsylvania border, so it is possible that she was still able to see her parents while she was in her aunt's care. We don't have much detail about her early life, though. It's not even clear how long her parents lived after she was born or why she was raised by an aunt. But Delaware was a slave state, and Pennsylvania had passed a gradual abolition act in 1780. The number of people enslaved in Pennsylvania had declined after that, so there were fewer than 100 remaining by the time Rebecca was born. So it's possible 
that her family thought that Rebecca would be safer in Pennsylvania than in Delaware. At the same time, Black people were still at risk throughout the United States, even if they were free. The Fugitive Slave Clause in Article 4 of the U.S. Constitution specified that people could not free themselves from bondage in one state by escaping to another state. The Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 created a legal mechanism to enforce this clause, and the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, passed when Rebecca was 19, expanded that earlier act and led to a huge increase in free Black people being kidnapped and enslaved. So it's possible that that was part of Rebecca's decision to move farther north to Massachusetts in the 1850s. By 1852, she was working in Charlestown, which is part of Boston now, but at the time was a separate city. She worked as a nurse, and her initial nursing training was informal. As Davis would later write, quote, having been reared by a kind aunt in Pennsylvania whose usefulness with the sick was continually sought, I early conceived a liking for and sought every opportunity to be in a position to relieve the sufferings of others. This kind of informal training was not at all unusual. Nursing had not evolved as a formalized profession yet. There were not any nursing schools in the U.S. or Europe. So most people who were working as nurses were learning from a family member or somebody else in their community. Rebecca got married on April 19, 1852, to a man named Wyatt Lee. We don't know much about Wyatt, except that he was a laborer born in Prince George County, Virginia. He had previously been enslaved, and he had a son named Albert from an earlier marriage. Albert sadly died at the age of eight of what may have been some kind of heart failure that was just about a year after Rebecca and Wyatt got married. Rebecca worked as a nurse in Charlestown for about eight years, and in 1860, some of the doctors she had worked for gave her letters of recommendation that she used to apply to the New England Female Medical College. This medical school had been founded as Boston Female Medical College in 1848, and it was the first institution in the United States to formally offer medical training to women. Its founder, Samuel Gregory, was the author of a work called Man Midwifery Exposed and Corrected, or the Employment of Men to Attend Women in Childbirth and in Other Delicate Circumstances, shown to be a modern innovation, unnecessary, unnatural, and injurious to the physical welfare of the community and pernicious in its influence on professional and public morality, and the whole proved by numerous facts and the testimony of the most eminent physicians in Boston, New York, and other places, and the education and employment of midwives recommended. As is obvious from this very long title, he thought it was indecent for male doctors to attend women who were giving birth, and he thought that women should be trained to do it. The Female Medical College initially offered a basic midwifery program, and in 1850, its curriculum expanded to include more comprehensive medical training. By that point, Gregory had also written Letter to Ladies in Favor of Female Physicians for Their Own Sex. This was a nearly 50-page letter that started, quote, It is not a recent or hastily formed opinion on the part of the writer that there ought to be a class of females thoroughly educated and qualified to act as medical advisors and professional attendants in those departments of practice which relate particularly to their own sex, the daughter, the wife, the mother. 
Rebecca Lee was accepted into this program, but she had to put her education on hold for a while to care for her husband who had contracted tuberculosis. Wyatt died in April of 1863, and after his death, Rebecca returned to school. She graduated on February 24th, 1864, with the degree Doctress of Medicine. There was apparently some hesitation around allowing her to graduate. Tracy wasn't able to find specifics, so we can't really say whether she genuinely struggled with the coursework or whether her examiner's opinions of her performance were influenced by racism or some combination of the two. According to a transcript of the faculty notes, quote, owing to the deficiencies in the academic education of Mrs. Lee and the slow progress she has made in her professional studies, we have hesitated very seriously in recommending her certification. The school did ultimately allow her to graduate out of deference to the Board of Trustees and to public feeling. Nothing spells out the details of that public feeling, but in 1864, the U.S. was well into the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln had issued the Emancipation Proclamation, and Massachusetts had become a focal point in the fight to abolish slavery. Regarding the title Doctress, 1864 seems to be the first year that the school used this title for its graduates, but the question of what to call women doctors wasn't entirely settled. And at least in some years, the school conferred the degree as doctor or as doctress, depending on the preference of the individual graduate. Rebecca Lee Crumpler later wrote about it in her own book, making it clear that she thought doctress was the correct title for her. Quote, There can be no more important duties to perform in the capacity of housekeeping than that of caring for the helpless babe. Women doctors, or more properly speaking, doctresses of medicine, although usually treated with less courtesy by doctors, are, nevertheless, by them considered to be in their proper sphere in the confinement room and nursery. While I feel under no obligations to them for their charity, I must admit their honesty and truthfulness in the matter. For surely, woman cannot fill a single position in the world so freighted with material out of which the moral and physical condition of humanity can be affected, either for good or evil. Graduating from the New England Female Medical College made Rebecca Lee the first Black woman in the U.S. to earn an M.D. At that point, there were about 54,000 doctors in the United States, and only about 300 of those were women, and only one Black woman. She wasn't the United States' first Black doctor, though, That's typically recognized as James Durham, who is on my list for an episode if I can find enough information. Durham didn't have a formal medical degree, though. He was enslaved from birth and learned medicine from the doctors who enslaved him. Durham's work as a doctor attracted the attention of Dr. Benjamin Rush, who was so impressed with it that he read a paper Durham wrote on diphtheria before the College of Physicians of Pennsylvania. The first Black person from the United States to earn a medical degree was James McCune Smith in 1837, although he earned that degree in Scotland because U.S. medical schools wouldn't admit him because of his race. The first Black American to earn an M.D. from a U.S. institution was David J. Peck, who graduated from Rush Medical College, Chicago, in 1847. We will talk more about Rebecca Crumpler's life after we pause for a sponsor break. 
I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. After graduating from the New England Female Medical College as a doctoress of medicine, Rebecca Lee went to Canada to gain some more experience. In St. John's, New Brunswick, on May 24, 1865, she married Arthur Crumpler. Arthur was a blacksmith. He had been enslaved in Virginia and had been hired out to somebody in that trade. Eventually, Arthur had been set up with a shop of his own, which, of course, still belonged to his enslaver, but he had escaped at the start of the Civil War. Arthur initially wound up at Fort Monroe, which we have talked about on the show before. Fort Monroe was the only federal fort in the Upper South to remain under the control of the United States for the duration of the war. It was under the command of Major General Benjamin Franklin Butler. That is the person who declared three men who had liberated themselves from slavery and escaped to the fort in 1861 to be contraband of war. The term contraband came to describe enslaved people who escaped to U.S. territory or were captured by the U.S. Army, and the United States eventually established contraband camps all over the territory that it controlled. Our episode on these camps was a Saturday classic in February of 2023. 
Eventually, Rebecca and Arthur made their way back to Boston. But soon after the Civil War ended, Rebecca saw a need for her skills in Virginia. In her words, quote, On my return after the close of the Confederate War, my mind centered upon Richmond, the capital city of Virginia, as the proper field for real missionary work, and one that would present ample opportunities to become acquainted with the diseases of women and children. During my stay there, nearly every hour was improved in that sphere of labor. The last quarter of the year 1866, I was enabled through the agency of the Bureau under General Brown to have access each day to a very large number of the indigent and others of different classes and a population of over 30,000 colored. So that Bureau, of course, was the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, better known as the Freedmen's Bureau. In about 1869, Crumpler went back to Boston, where she lived and practiced medicine on the north slope of Beacon Hill, the same neighborhood as Kitty Knox, who we talked about on the show last year, whose family moved there a little more than 10 years later. In Boston, Crumpler, quote, entered into the work with renewed vigor, practicing outside and receiving children in the house for treatment. In 1870, Rebecca and Arthur had a daughter, Lizzie Sinclair Crumpler, but she doesn't appear in later historical records, and it's possible that she died in childhood. Around this time, New England Female Medical College, where she'd graduated, fell into financial difficulties. A major fire in 1872 destroyed a huge part of Boston's financial district and a number of businesses and warehouses, This was financially devastating for some of the investors who had been keeping the school afloat. The school's founder, Dr. Samuel Gregory, also died of tuberculosis that same year. The school started looking for options that would allow it to stay open, ultimately merging with Boston University. BU took on the medical college's debts, and the medical school started also enrolling men, which made this the first accredited co-educational medical school in the U.S., It is now Boston University Chobanian and Avedesian School of Medicine. In the 1870s, Crumpler worked with an organization of ladies to help care for sick women and children in Boston and to offer affordable boarding to the children of working women. Her medical practice also focused on the care and treatment of women and children. At a time when the fields of obstetrics, gynecology, and pediatrics were in their infancy and largely being dominated by male doctors. During these years, the Crumplers also started attending 12th Baptist Church, and they continued to be active and dedicated members there even after moving out of the neighborhood years later. Their move to another church ultimately followed allegations of impropriety involving the pastor and an 18-year-old member of the church choir. In the mid-1870s, Crumpler spent some time outside of Boston, teaching in other communities. When abolitionist and politician Charles Sumner died in 1874, Crumpler was in Wilmington, Delaware, and she read a poem that she had written herself at a service that was held in his honor at the city's Bethel Methodist Episcopal Church. I wish we had this poem. To my knowledge, we don't. After returning to Boston in 1875, Crumpler enrolled as a special student in mathematics at West Newton English and Classical School. There's a little bit of confusion here. There are some sources that say that Crumpler attended this school much earlier, back in the 1850s before going to medical school. But there's a book of the school's history called An Illustrated Biographical Catalog of the Principals, Teachers, and Students of the West Newton English and Classical School 
And that book gives her first year of enrollment is 1875. It is not impossible that this is some kind of error and that she really did go to the school much earlier. But if that 1875 year is correct, we don't really know what led her to wanting to make a special study of math at the age of 44. I'm very curious about all of this. I mean, I get it. Um, (laughs) Sometimes you want to learn new stuff. Uh, But she may have chosen this particular school because her husband had become friends with its founder, Nathaniel T. Allen, after arriving in Boston. According to one account, Arthur Crumpler was one of several so-called contrabands who were hired in and around West Newton during the Civil War, and Allen taught him how to read. That same account mentions Rebecca going to the school before medical school, and a later interview with Arthur Crumpler suggests he didn't know how to read until much later. So all of this is pretty unclear in terms of its timeline accuracy. Yeah, it reads like a person's, like, personal recollection of the events as they happened, and I don't really know how much it aligns with what we can document. In 1880, the Crumplers moved from Beacon Hill to Hyde Park, which is a neighborhood of Boston today, but was at the time its own incorporated town several miles south of the city. She continued to practice medicine, and in 1883, she published a book of medical discourses in two parts. We will be talking about this book more in just a bit. Rebecca Crumpler seems to have continued working as a doctor until the end of her life. In 1894, she and her practice were mentioned in an article in the Boston Globe. This was sort of a profile of the most prominent people in Boston's Black community, which at that point numbered about 10,000 people. This write-up said of her, quote, Dr. Crumpler is the one woman who, as a physician, made an enviable place for herself in the ranks of the medical fraternity. Dr. Crumpler is the author of rather a valuable book, Medical Discourses. She is a very pleasant and intellectual woman and an indefatigable church worker. This article also went on to describe her appearance, as it did for many of the other women included in the article. The Hyde Park Directory and Town Register also listed her as a physician and her husband as a laborer in its 1895-1896 edition. Rebecca Davis Lee Crumpler died on March 9, 1895, at the age of 64. Her cause of death was given as fibroid tumors. She was buried in Fairview Cemetery in Hyde Park. This cemetery had been open for just about two years, and a lot of the people who were buried there, really in its first couple of decades, didn't have their graves marked in any way. That was true for Crumpler until very recently, which is something else that we will be talking about in a little bit. But first, we're going to get into detail about her book, and we will do that after we pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. 
And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Rebecca Crumpler's A Book of Medical Discourses in Two Parts, published in 1883, was one of the first medical texts by a Black person to be published in the United States, if not the first. And as was the case with Crumpler's work as a doctor, it was really focused on women and children. Its dedication read, quote, to mothers, nurses, and all who may desire to mitigate the afflictions of the human race, this book is prayerfully offered. She went on to say, quote, Indeed, I desire that my book shall be as a primary reader in the hands of every woman, and yet nonetheless suited to any who may be conversant with all branches of medical science. If women are permitted to read and reflect for themselves, it is hardly possible that they will say it is uninteresting to them or that it should only be read by men. This book was full of health and medical advice interwoven with Crumpler's own experiences and anecdotes about things she had experienced and seen in her nearly two decades of medical practice. And she allowed this book to stand on its own merits and her own knowledge and experience, unlike a number of books on other subjects by Black women that were written in the 18th and 19th centuries, which were introduced by white men. She wrote the introduction for this book herself. She wrote this book at a time when ideas around sex and gender and gender roles were a lot more binary and rigid than they are today. Women were expected to have and raise children almost without exception. So she began with her thoughts on marriage as it related to the health of a couple's future children. In her opinion, girls should get married at about 19 or 20 because getting married and becoming pregnant before their bodies were mature led to weekly children. She thought that the same was true for women who gave birth at much older ages, and she thought that men should be between the ages of 22 and 25 by the time they took on the responsibility of having a family. 
From there, she described how, in her experience, the symptoms of early pregnancy could be mistaken for a cold, but the treatments for cold symptoms would have no effect if they were really being caused by pregnancy. She also thought that repeatedly trying to treat these symptoms could dysregulate the body. And she wrote, quote, Suffice it to say that too frequent physicking and overindulgence in intoxicating liquors and tobacco will cause sickly diminutive offspring to say nothing of premature births. A big focus of her work and this book was the period of confinement after giving birth, a period that Crumpler referred to just as the month. This included correct methods for bathing newborns. She criticized the use of cold water or even ice water for stimulating newborn circulation, saying that she had seen infants get sick or die after becoming too cold from this practice. And she advised that soaps, even soaps that were advertised as pure baby soap, were too irritating to use on newborn skin. Instead, she recommended using clean cloth made of soft linen or cotton, dipped in sweet oil or melted lard, to gently clean the baby, wiping them dry with clean flannel. She also criticized male doctors who usually just left as soon as the umbilical cord was cut, quote, for it is not at all reasonable to conclude that because a woman is the mother of many children, she is an expert in the matter of washing and dressing the newborn, or of relieving the various ailments incident upon childbearing. Crumpler had strong opinions on the uselessness of so-called baby medicines during the first month of life, writing, quote, "...probably the greatest amount of mischief arising from the administration of baby teas lies in the fact that they are not given with the least certainty as to their effect upon the system of the child, whether to nourish the blood or physic the bowels." She went on to say, quote, it would be well to notice that children who are dosed during infancy for every supposed ill are seldom robust. She also deemed patent cough syrups to be unsafe, as was the practice of giving a, quote, weak toddy, meaning diluted alcohol, to babies to get them to sleep. She offered advice on what could be fed to babies if their mothers could not produce milk, but she criticized the practice of rich women hiring wet nurses. Quote, a lady of wealth may get discouraged and give her babe to the care of another whose babe may in consequence have to be put in some charity house or otherwise to board. Her babe may thrive and live while that of her wet nurse may soon pine away and die. No one could avoid distressing others unless he strives to the best of his ability to bear his own burdens. Some of her writing touched on the ideas of public health and disease prevention at a time when these fields were just starting to develop. For example, quote, It is my serious opinion that thousands of children die annually in the city of Boston, under five years of age, from diseases brought on through the excitement of expecting to go to school, the early change, the exposures from actual compulsory attendance, while the system has barely recovered from a lengthy prostration and now needing fostering at home with regular meals and plenty of toys for amusement. Many are the little children of three and a half, four and a half, and five years that are still getting teeth sent out in the streets to saunter along in the chill air of our hill streets to some schoolhouse. Heaven bless our schools, for they are invaluable, but may God change the minds of the people as to such early exposures, being best for the credit of our commonwealth. She stressed the need for good ventilation, something that came up a lot in 19th century writing about health and disease. Quote, 
windows can be dropped from the top or a swinging pane set in the top of the sash. It's a very good way to ventilate or let in fresh air. So few people that depend on their bodily strength from day to day stop to think that pure air is the all-essential element and that without light, air, and sun in their dwellings, the poisonous gases cannot leave them, but they must sooner or later succumb to them. And she acknowledged some of the ways that economic factors play a part in all of this, although in a way that suggests that she thought people could easily resolve these issues just by making different choices. She wrote, quote, especially do some of the laboring women of my race appear to work under heavy disadvantages. If the family is small, they are never through with their work. If it is large, there is a double excuse for having no time to rest. Yet many real needful things are left undone. I have often wondered if such housekeepers, whose own affairs are neglected and in whose homes things go to waste, while they take so much upon them of other people's work, never thought of the story of filling a hogshead at the spigot that had no stopper at the bung. Her thoughts were similar when it came to men who had to work too hard to make ends meet. Quote, So with our men who labor hard, they are anxious to keep the wolf from the door, and they thoughtlessly rise in the morning, go to work, perhaps without breakfast, working for hours in a condition for odors, contagious or otherwise, to affect the system. Thus the liabilities to colds and the vital organs, which may go on for years, gradually undermining the general health, or may, as frequently happens, develop in lung fever and consequent shattered constitution. The laboring men of my race, generally speaking, take much better care of the horses entrusted to their care than they do of their own health. Were men just as particular about what they themselves eat and drink and how they dress and sleep, the deaths of young men of 30 and 40 years would not be so common. Those who are not careful of their health die early in this climate and their offspring die earlier. Crumpler's book was arranged in two parts, and the second included more general advice. So things like relief for menstruation pain, recommended warm compresses rather than alcohol or narcotics. She had this to say about menopause, quote, avoid overheated rooms or exciting scenes. Keep the bowels free without severe physic. Use coarse, plain food. Drink very little of fluids. Avoid spices, stimulants, and secure cheerful exercise for the mind with an abundance of outdoor scenery. Cultivate a love for the gifts of our Heavenly Father. Seek to do good for those who are worse off than yourself, and all will come out right. She also offered information on anatomy with suggested treatments for things like rheumatism, soft bones, hemorrhoids, colds, bronchitis, burns, and sore throats. A lot of her advice was just really straightforward and no nonsense. Like, here is her entry on some common foot problems. Quote, corns or callus, whether on the feet of children or adults, come from wearing shoes that are too short and too wide or otherwise ill-suited, the friction of which when walking creates festers, the matter of which dries and becomes a corn. Treatment. Remove the cause. Keep the feet clean and comfortably clad. And she ended the book with a recipe formula for making Dr. Crumpler's vegetable alternative. And here is how the recipe goes. Take a fresh Indian posy and water pepper herbs, each one ounce. White pine bark or tops, one half ounce. Whorehound herb, one fourth. Simmer in two quarts of water in a covered vessel four or five hours. Have three pints when strained. Then add two and one half pounds of loaf sugar. Boil briskly to a clear, thick syrup. 
Pour out and stir in while hot one teaspoon of pulverized mandrake root. Strain again through a fine cloth and, when cold, bottle and keep in a cool, dark place. If pedophilin, the concentrated mandrake is used, which I prefer, only one half teaspoonful is required to a quart of syrup. Dose for an adult from one half to two thirds of a small wine glassful once a day while resting. Dose for small children in case of bloating, worms, cough, from half to a whole teaspoonful at bedtime for a short while. Good to remove old colds from continued exposure, morbid craving for tobacco, alcoholic beverages, or other blood-poisoning idols, for which the dose is one teaspoonful in a glass of cold water at every inclination to drink, chew, or smoke. After this recipe, she noted, quote, Perseverance will ensure success. No remedy should be continued after relief is obtained. Too much physicking impoverishes the blood. As we said earlier, Rebecca Crumpler's grave at Fairview Cemetery in Hyde Park was initially unmarked, and that was true of many of the other early burials in that part of the cemetery, including that of her husband Arthur, who died in 1910. But both their grave sites were marked in 2020 after a fundraising effort led by the Friends of the Hyde Park Library under President Vicki Gall. The podcast Hub History has an episode titled Dr. Rebecca Crumpler Forgotten No Longer that came out in August of 2020, and it includes audio from the ceremony after these gravestones were installed. Their markers have their names and the years of their births and deaths on the front. And Rebecca's also says, quote, the first Black woman to earn a medical degree in the U.S., 1864. And then they have additional inscriptions on the back. Rebecca's reads, quote, the community and the Commonwealth's four medical schools honor Dr. Rebecca Crumpler for her ceaseless courage, pioneering achievements, and historic legacy as a physician, author, nurse, missionary, and advocate for health equity and social justice. And Arthur says, quote, enslaved at birth, escaped to freedom, man of faith, Boston's oldest pupil. Boston Globe, April 3rd, 1898. That Boston's oldest pupil is a reference to an article about his taking night classes at the age of 74. Since he had been enslaved from birth, he hadn't been taught to read as a child. That was illegal. Later on, he'd tried to teach himself, but he didn't get very far, and he struggled with a later effort to take classes because he had difficulty with his eyesight. Rebecca had done most of his reading and writing for him during their marriage, but when she died in 1895, he wanted to learn for himself. Also, today, Rebecca Crumpler's Beacon Hill home is a stop on the Boston Women's Heritage Trail. It is not currently a stop on the Black Heritage Trail, although that trail does go directly past it on the other side of the street. Also, as a couple of final notes, there is another Rebecca who is sometimes described as the first Black woman to earn an M.D. in the United States. That is Rebecca Cole. She earned her M.D. from the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania in 1867, three years after Rebecca Crumpler earned the degree of Doctress of Medicine. And there are no known pictures of Rebecca Crumpler, But there's a lot of stuff on the internet that is accompanied by photos that are purportedly of her. There are a couple of photos that just don't have clear documentation of who they depict, and it is not impossible that they could be of Rebecca Crumpler, but we really do not know. 
The vast majority of these photos that show up online, though, are of other Black women whose identities we do know. One of the most commonly used photos is really Mary Eliza Mahoney, who was the first Black woman known to go through formal training as a nurse in the U.S. She lived in Boston and worked at the New England Hospital for Women and Children. That hospital was founded in 1862, with only women on its full-time staff, and it eventually opened the first nursing school in the U.S. Mahoney graduated from that program in 1879. Another commonly used photo is really of Georgia E.L. Patton Washington, who went to Meharry Medical College and became the second woman to graduate from there. She was the first Black woman to be licensed as both a doctor and a surgeon in the state of Tennessee. And lastly, there's an image of a medal or a coin stamped with Dr. Rebecca Lee, 1833. This seems to have come from a set of commemorative coins commissioned or created by Sun Oil Company as part of an award named for Dr. Charles Drew, who we've covered on the show before. It's likely that this illustration is really just meant to represent the idea of a Black woman doctor from the 1830s. It's unclear what the year 1833 is meant to signify since that is not her birth year and it is also not the year that she became a doctor. So there's some some mysteries or perhaps just errors in the, the striking of that coin. I had a hard time finding, like, concrete information about these, like, who else was in the coins. I don't know. Um, if, if I had went down a deeper rabbit hole on that, I might have found more about it. But yeah, uh, no pictures of her. Do you have listener mail? I do have a little listener mail. Yes. This listener mail is from Thomas. And Thomas, uh, this is actually from, uh, I guess, not that long ago. I've had it flagged to read for a while. But uh, Thomas wrote, Hi, Holly and Tracy. Writing in because it felt like the latest unearthed was full of things you put in for me. My old university, York, England, got a mention, and someone I remember from the archaeology department, as well as my hometown of Kings Lynn. I get why you don't get the fuss about Shakespeare's floorboards. (laughs) It's mainly a tactic to raise the profile of what we usually call the Guild Hall. Our other medieval Guild Hall became the Town Hall because the floor Shakespeare was on gets way more publicity than 15th century wood floor. It needs so much upkeep and is in a town rammed with historic buildings, so we need a lot of outside help to keep our treasures for the future generations. So we will at times be a little absurd for attention. It's a lovely building. I've been on the stage of a few times in concerts, mad but delightful in the best way. Although today it is again a theater. It was rescued by Lady Fermoy. Viewers of The Crown will know her as Princess Diana's aunt and the Queen Mother's Lady-in-Waiting. She made our town's welfare her cause, and among her achievements were getting the Guildhall restored in the 1950s. It was a garage, starting the town festival and funding the mental health hospital. Uh, With all the royals taking the first subscription to causes she encouraged, everyone wanted their name up there alongside the royal names as per the seat sponsor chart, still in the Guildhall. Uh, there's a little bit more about Lynn, which locals don't use the king's part in the name. And uh, there's a shout-out to the uh, Museum of Methodism and John Wesley's house and grave in London. Um, since I have no pets to pay pet tax with, 
I include some graves from Pickering Church in Yorkshire, England. It was common on medieval tombs to include faithful pets or lions at people's feet, as well as some maybe turn-of-the-last-millennium gravestones, all on display in a charming town church where I spent Christmas. Keep up the amazing work. I've been listening for years, and the quality has remained constant. All the best, Thomas. And yet, so these are... uh, uh, just an assortment of gravestones, which uh, we have said we love pictures of all kinds of things. Yeah. So I love this. Thank you so much for this and for sort of a little behind the scenes about that possible Shakespeare floor. Uh, Holly is still so obviously delighted by that whole thing. <laughs> I am. I And I, I don't mean to like... I, there's no condescension here. I just think it's funny. It's like the funniest, oddest thing. It's like going, this is a famous man's shoelace. It's just an odd thing that still has historical significance, but it's such, you know, the things we would never think about. You know, like, when you're walking through your house right now, you don't consider that, like, one day someone will be like, this tile was laid in 1985. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's a funny thing. It's the mundane stuff of life that becomes important, and that, to me, has its own comedy. Well, thank you again for this email, which is from fully a month ago, and I have finally read. If you would like to send us a note about this or any other podcast, we're at HistoryPodcast at iHeartRadio.com. We're on social media at various places at Missed in History, uh, including Facebook, Instagram, and X is still a weird name to me to say. Um, And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and wherever else you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.